Hey, this is Scott Galloway, author, professor, entrepreneur, and most importantly, host of the Prop G podcast. We got a special series running on right now called The Future of Work, where I answer all your questions on, surprise, The Future of Work. Questions including, what are we missing when we work remotely? Or how do we handle work-life balance when a major opportunity comes knocking? From the provocative to the technical, we're offering insights you won't want to miss. So tune in to The Future of Work, a Pod special sponsored by Canva. You can find it on the Pod wherever you get your podcasts. In 2022, Team Milk came together by sponsoring female marathon runners for the marathon in New York City. Today, they're more than 20,000 strong. In 2024, Team Milk is making an even bigger commitment to female runners and launching the only women's marathon in the U.S., designed for and by women. The inaugural Every Woman's Marathon will take place in Savannah, Georgia on November 16th, 2024. You can learn more and register for the marathon at everywomansmarathon.com. Hey, it's Max. I've got a uh, recommendation for you, a podcast I think you should try. If you were listening to Longform, uh, which I realize you are doing, uh, I think you should check out this other show. It's called The Writer's Co-op. And it's a podcast about freelance journalism, how to make it as a freelance journalist. It's hosted by two freelance journalists, Udan Yan and Jenny Gritters. And uh, on the show, they talk about how you can do this work in a sustainable way. They talk about burnout. They talk about how you can find assignments. And they also talk about money, like really honestly and really directly. If you're looking for an episode to start with, I suggest the one that's titled F.U. Pay Me. So if you need a sense of how they talk about money on the show, there it is. There's a there's an episode called F You Pay Me. Anyway, go check it out. It's called The Writer's Co-op. If you are starting a freelance career, if you're thinking about starting a freelance career, if you're in a freelance career and would like some help, The Writer's Co-op podcast is a great place to start. Go check them out. But for now, here's the show. Welcome to the Long Form Podcast. I am Patrice Peck. Patrice, you're back. Welcome back. Thanks for having me back. Welcome, Patrice. We're happy to have you. Who uh, Who is on the show this week? Who'd you talk to? This week, I spoke with the Pulitzer Prize finalist and Emmy Award winning Jacqueline Charles. She is a Caribbean correspondent at the Miami Herald. Uh, what What does that job entail? Like she She's covering the entire Caribbean? Yeah, pretty much. Um, she covers all of the many nations within the Caribbean region. And it's so interesting because she covers every subject matter within that beat. So she's covering politics. She's covering health. She's covering science, culture, all of it across different nations and every nation as you can imagine is just so different um but she's been doing it all for so many years now and it's interesting because as i mentioned last week i started um, a newsletter called coronavirus news for black folks earlier in april and i wanted to include in this newsletter news about the virus as it directly relates to black communities but that includes black communities worldwide so as i'm looking up you're trying to find news about the coronavirus throughout the Caribbean region and also the Caribbean diaspora. So like those Caribbean communities in the U.S., um, in Europe and elsewhere, I'm 
constantly coming across articles by Jacqueline. And I'm like, does anyone else not cover this region? (laughs) Um, And then, you know, I spoke with Jacqueline and it's, she told me that the Miami Herald seems to be one of the few, if only, newsrooms that dedicates full-time resources to covering um, the Caribbean region. Um, So yeah, there's definitely other reporters out there, of course, that cover the Caribbean region, but Jacqueline Charles is one of the very few reporters doing it full-time. She's carrying this region and coverage on her back. It's crazy. It's unfortunate there are so few people doing that work full-time at U.S. news outlets, and also it sounds incredibly hard. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, Jacqueline, she loves what she does. She's so passionate about storytelling and she just has this like innate natural curiosity that has kept her motivated and has driven her work. You know, she's referred to herself as the disaster queen. I mean, and it's true, like she's covered everything from like color outbreaks, election riots, um, humanitarian miracles. She became a Pulitzer finalist because of her singular coverage of the Haiti earthquake in 2010, you know, one of the most devastating natural disasters in history. And she's also Haitian. That's her background, right? So she says she's a self-proclaimed child of the Caribbean. So not only is she reporting on this region, she's from this region. She has family still in this region. Um, She has a lot of skin in the game, but You know, she's still doing it after all this time, after seeing so much death, after, you know, having these close encounters with death herself while reporting on a lot of these stories. Um, I I said, you know, they need to make a biopic about Jacqueline Charles. Okay, it needs to happen. Whoever is listening to this and has some Hollywood connects, her (laughs) career is insane and it's not even done. It's not even close to being done. Well, they definitely need to do that. Uh, But first, I feel like people should just listen to the interview. That's a great way to start. (laughs) Thank you uh, so much for uh, coming back week two, Patrice. Thank you also, of course, to MailChimp, who makes this show possible week after week. Thank you very much to MailChimp. Hey, Evan, I heard heard a rumor that you have a new article out. It's true, Max. Once in a while, I do... uh... I do conduct the business of journalism. Uh, I have a story coming out in Wired magazine. It's actually the July cover story. Uh, It's out now on Wired.com. It is the thing that I worked on during the whole of the pandemic so far. And it's about a guy named Nathan Wolf, who I profiled 12, 13 years ago, uh, who basically predicted this entire pandemic. And it has been his life's work to uh, try and figure out what to do about them. And then the big one came and uh, it's also about pandemic insurance, which is something he's been working on for years and came up with a way for businesses to buy pandemic insurance. And then uh, none of them bought it. I look forward to reading that. Uh, For now though, uh, here is Patrice with Jacqueline Charles. Jacqueline. It's so great Hi. to meet you. <laughs> great to meet you too, to virtual meet. Yes, yes. Um, where are you right now? I'm in Miami. And before COVID, my job required me to fly around the Caribbean. But these days, I am covering the Caribbean from my bedroom. 
<laughs> yeah. So what has that been like, you know, being on a international beat, but reporting from the U.S.? Well, you know, I've been blessed in the sense that I've been doing this beat for a while. And because I've been doing it for a while, a long while, I've developed a Rolodex of sources that I can call and I can talk to directly about, you know, what's happening in their countries, including prime ministers um, who are running these governments and are dealing with this pandemic right now. At the same time, because I've written other kinds of stories and have developed a reputation in the region, it is easier in some respect to get people on the phone. And then you can also tap other journalists and other colleagues because you do need, you know, eyes on the ground and you need people maybe sometimes to go to a place. But I start every morning tuning into Haitian radio and just listening there to get the headlines and to hear the interviews. And then from there, my day gets crazy. So at the very beginning of this pandemic, I literally was writing two and three stories a day. I want to back up a little bit, or a lot, I should say, because, as you mentioned, you've been covering this region and this beat for a long time now. And I read that your first journalism job, I believe, was um, when you were 14 as an intern at the Miami Herald, right? Yes, indeed. (laughs) Yes, that is amazing. First of all, I think whoever's listening, you know, Hollywood people out there, you need to make a biopic about Jacqueline because her career as you will hear in this interview, is it spans so many different like historic um, events and there's so much action in terms of like the way she's gone about covering things. She's fearless, just like uh, I think it was you received an award, Best Miami Herald Reporter 2011, and they described you as fearless, and I totally agree. And so let's give the people some context. Um, talk about your start as an intern. I was an intern at the Miami Herald when I was 14. And I have to tell you that I was not going to be a journalist. I was going to be a doctor because every Haitian kid, their parent either wants a doctor, an engineer, or a priest. (laughs) (laughs) So I was blessed that I had a teacher, my gifted teacher, who also happened to have been the librarian, Evelyn Wynn, who just passed away a couple of months ago. God bless her, who decided for whatever reason, I never asked her why, and I regret I didn't, but she decided to have a lesson about newspapers. And so we spent several weeks studying the Miami Herald, and she invited the editor of the paper at the time, John Brecher, who went on, you know, Wall Street Journal and other papers, but she invited him and his wife, Dorothy Gady, to come and speak to us. And I'm at an inner city junior high school in Miami with black and brown students, Hispanics and blacks, African-American as well as Caribbean blacks. And they talk and they give this great presentation. And then they said questions. And Ms. Wynn was one of those teachers who like looked at you from the side of her eye like that. Don't you embarrass me now. <laughs> and nobody was asking, nobody was saying anything. And I just felt like, oh my God, like they're just going to think that we're just a bunch of dumb inner city kids and we don't know anything. <laughs> so I started asking questions just to, you know, break the ice, get rid of the silence. And I don't even remember what I asked, but John Brecher decided that I was interested in journalism. No, I'm not. (laughs) And he started talking about this high school journalism internship program at the Miami Herald. And so imagine his big wig from a newspaper 
that's won all of these Pulitzer Prizes. He comes, he talks to a bunch of 14-year-old inner city kids. And then he goes back to his office and he calls my teacher and he says, listen, I just checked and they're now doing interviews for the next round of high school interns. So that young lady that was asking the questions today, can you bring her in? So Ms. Wynn tells me about it, doesn't even give me a choice. And she basically tells me, I'm taking you down there tomorrow for an interview. (laughs) So I got the job and I started off in the neighbor's Northwest office, which this is an office that basically covered Black Miami. So the reporters in there covered all of these Black cities in Miami, inner city, you know, all of these issues, but rich stories. And my job was in charge of what they call school scenes. So I would go in and put together the calendar of news that was happening around schools in those areas. And then during the summer, which is when I started, I got a chance to actually write stories, pitch stories. And I remember one of the things that I was asked for, because we had a situation where we had an unarmed Black man who was shot and killed by a Hispanic police officer. And we had riots. And I remember the editor at the time coming to me and asking me if I could write a piece. I remember just being shocked, but she wanted me as, you know, as an inner city kid who lived in Overtown. And this is where this incident happened. And she wanted my reflections. And I remember writing a piece that is still in the Miami Herald archives. I think I may need to go dig that up. <laughs> but it just tells you that journalism was not something that I thought about, I could write, but I was a science and math person. I thought I knew where I wanted my career to go. And everybody in that newsroom kept pushing me, pushing me to apply for this scholarship. So at the time, the Miami Herald was owned by Knight Ritter. And Knight Ritter was one of the largest newspaper companies in the country, I think maybe third. And it really was big about minority development. It believed in selecting young students, minority students who were interested in careers in journalism and basically honing those skills through mentorship and through opportunities. And every year, Knight Ritter selected students who were interested in news and you competed nationally and the winners received a $20,000 scholarship. But more importantly, you had a guaranteed internship every summer. And they knew something that I didn't know, which was because they've made this investment in you, when you were graduating from college, you were such a commodity that everybody's like, oh, I need you. I want you. You had all these internships. Come on down. So they also had this clause that you had to give your first year back to the company. So you couldn't go work to the New York Times. So I became the Miami Herald. I, I finally relented and I applied. And I became the Miami Herald's second KR scholar when I graduated. And I, I interned at the Miami Herald the first two summers. And then the third summer, I said, you know what? I need to spread my wings. I need to know if I can really do this. I need to go someplace completely unfamiliar. So I went to Detroit to the free press and it was 
a wonderful internship. I had this great editor, Otis Sanford. And I remember I came in one day, there was a church that burned and he told me that I was going to anchor this story. I mean, I was going to be the lead writer. And he, there was a veteran reporter with 10 years experience and he was giving me info for me to write. I'm like, huh, are you serious? <laughs> <laughs> so when you're that young and somebody has all of that belief in you, you know, it really, it grooms you, it helps you, it tells you, I can do this. Mm. And that's why I've been blessed that I benefited from a company that really believed in promoting minority journalism and growing it. They just didn't give it lip service, but they did it. And then I came back to the Miami Herald and I went back to my old office covering Overtown, Liberty City. And then I went off to Broward County, which is where Fort Lauderdale is. I was covering education and I did politics. I did all these beats that had nothing to do with race or ethnicity or class because as black journalists, you know, we always struggle with this, right? What we call the ghettoization of beats. You're interested in your community. You're interested in these issues, but you don't want people to think that these are the only things that you can cover. So where do you balance it out? You know, you're covering these other issues and sometimes you get frustrated in the newsroom because you see the tone of a story or you see how one of your colleagues may be approaching a subject and you're getting mad about it because you're saying, no, you're missing it, but you don't want to be pigeonholed. So there's always that struggle. But I knew once I decided that I wanted journalism as a career, I knew that I wanted to be the Caribbean correspondent at the Miami Herald. I wrote it every year on my evaluation. What's your goal? My goal is this is what I want. Now, the guy who was in this job was in this job for over 30, 40 years. I swore to God that this man, I was going to die and he was still going to be in this job. <laughs> and then one day he announced his retirement. And guess what? I didn't apply for the job. Why not? I wanted to go into the job on my own terms. Mm. At some point when you say something, it becomes like this dream, right? It's a goal you're reaching for. And maybe you're not even convinced that you can get it or you can do it, but you put it out into the universe because that's what you're striving for. And then one day you wake up and it's right there and it's in front of you. But you, then you have to ask yourself that question. Are you ready? Are you ready? You know, is this what I want right now in my career? Or are there other things that I want to do first? And so at the time when it became available, I was still having fun covering politics and education. And Going back to what I talked about in terms of pigeonholing, right? I don't want somebody to think that, oh, okay, because you're Caribbean, that's why you're proving correspondent. No, I felt like there were still other things I wanted to do. And I needed to prove either to myself or to others that I can do those things. So when I finally accepted, one, they came to me and, <laughs> and asked and begged because there were people that had the job and, and left. But by that point, I had proven myself. I was always the person that they would put on a plane and go to Haiti and go track down people who had washed up on shores, you know, in Miami and go and find them. So I showed that I could be an investigative reporter in a country where you don't have the luxury of public records. I showed that I can 
go into combat without getting, you know, killed, knock, knock, you know, it's, you're always there. I show that I can do disaster and still get you the story because I tell journalists all the time, if you're careless, or you do something stupid. Basically, if you're dead, you can't make deadline. Mm. So all of these were things that by the time that I decided to take the job, it was on my own terms and my own terms being personal terms. I have friends of mine who will often say, oh, you know, you don't want to keep getting pigeonholed. You should be doing this. You should do that. And I said, no, I choose to do this. And what I love about what I do is wake up every morning excited. And for real, we're in an industry where people are coming at you all the time, fake news, but I wake up excited because I have just this natural curiosity. I'm nosy. You know, I tell people, I said, I'm, I'm not, I'm not nosy because I'm a reporter. I'm a reporter because I'm nosy. I'm curious. So I wake up and I say, what if, what about that? And as a journalist, you have license to ask. And that license is your freedom, the freedom to ask the question and to dig and dig and research it and tell people something that they don't know. And the other beautiful thing about when you're a foreign journalist at a mainstream paper is you're everything. You get to touch so many issues and, and you get to tap your, your interests. Hey, it's Max. I'm going to put things on hold for a second. I got a uh, book recommendation for you, except here's the thing. You don't need to take my word for it. You can take Oprah's word for it. Together with Apple Books, Oprah is highlighting the new novel from James McBride. It's called Deacon King Kong. It's a story of connections, of community, and of love in 1969 New York City. It's a social novel with a heart of gold and characters that are going to crack you up and make you cry. You can download Deacon King Kong at apple.co slash OBC. And you can also explore millions of other books and audiobooks on the Apple Books app, which is already on your iPhone or your iPad. There you'll find bestsellers, classics, up-and-coming authors, and more. Get started today. Read with us. The link again to download Deacon King Kong is apple.co slash OBC. Thanks to them for sponsoring the show. And uh, let's get back to the interview. I had already been familiar with your work, but... I started a newsletter early April called Coronavirus News for Black Folks, and that was my way of um, wanting to provide like a one-stop shop where Black readers could find coronavirus news and related news as it directly related to them and their community. And so... In this newsletter, I wanted to make sure it represented the whole African diaspora, right? And not just the Black community in the U.S. I wanted to know how other countries in the diaspora were being impacted, including the Caribbean region. And also, you know, just for context, I am a first-generation American. My whole family is from Jamaica. I have a large number of family members who are still in Jamaica, always live there, some in Canada, of course, England. And so... I 
was aware of what was happening in Jamaica just from on-the-ground feedback. But as I tried to find news from Jamaica and other nations in the Caribbean region to include in this newsletter, most of the stories I was finding were written by you. (laughs) And I was like, Jacqueline is carrying this beat on her back for at least for the U.S. and Europe. And that's not to say that there, of course, are not any other journalists um, covering this region, but your articles were certainly, just based on what I found, the most comprehensive, the most in-depth, the most diverse in terms of not specifically focusing on one area. Um, That's why I wanted to reach out and interview you for long form, because... You are a veteran, you're a legend, like, I wanted to know what your thoughts were now, considering you're covering this region during a pandemic, and so the news arguably is more important than ever, right? So can you talk a little bit about how maybe your process, your journalism process has changed and been impacted by this pandemic, coronavirus pandemic? Well, first of all, thank you for uh, that compliment. And I have to tell you that I am blessed as a journalist because I work for a newspaper, the Miami Herald and news organization, McClatchy, that honestly, we are the only newspaper in the U.S. that devote full-time resources to this region. I am the Caribbean reporter. You know, you talk about being a first-generation Jamaican-American. I was born in the region. I was born in Turks and Caicos. My mother's Haitian. My stepfather's Cuban. I've got family all over the Caribbean. So for me, it has always been about showing how we are more alike as opposed to being different or islands unto ourselves. So that is the approach that I've taken to this pandemic. Yes, I am the disaster queen. I've covered the earthquake in Haiti. I arrived in Haiti less than 24 hours after the quake in 2010. I've covered hurricanes in Jamaica on the ground. I was the first one in the Cayman Islands after Ivan, countless hurricanes in Haiti, unfortunately. And I was there for cholera. But this is a very different pandemic, right? Because it's impacting everybody at the same time. And at the Herald, we have a foreign desk, which is Latin America and the Caribbean. So even though I'm devoting a lot of focus to the Caribbean, I'm also looking at what's happening in Latin America, which is right now the epicenter of this pandemic. I mean, it accounts for half of the world's cases. So how do I approach when I think of a story? So let me give you an example, and it's actually a story out of Jamaica. So Jamaica was one of the countries that really impressed me early on when I was looking at this, because when most people think about the Caribbean, they're thinking about travel and tourism and beaches. And I remember the very first story I wrote was when both the Dominican Republic and Haiti turned away a plane that had Chinese tourists on board and there was this reaction and no, you can't come off. And there wasn't really a policy. And then I think two days later, we saw the same thing happen in Jamaica with another group of tourists. And then we had the first story about it being confirmed in the Caribbean and it was in the Dominican Republic and in the French West Indies. And I remember that being a Sunday when we wrote those stories and, you know, in St. Bart's and I'm starting to hear from people then. So this, I'm approaching this and looking at 
who's the first, what's going on, what's the reaction. And then Jamaica got their confirmed case. I think it was like March 11. And we're looking at how they're reacting and they were being very proactive. And fast forward a couple of weeks later or more than a month, almost two months later, and we see countries in the region start talking about opening up. And they're opening up and they're doing this phase reopening, but you see them struggling, trying to figure out how to do this and what to do. And I kept thinking about Jamaica, which was now, I think, over 500 cases. And Jamaica, given its response, should have been like at zero or they should have contained this. And now the numbers are keep going up. So I said, what's going on? And then I realized that in the case of Jamaica, they decided not to completely shut down their economy, but they left the call centers, you know, the Amazon call centers or, you know, whichever product that you're calling for at a customer service. Well, Jamaica, you know, this is a huge industry in Jamaica. They're called BPOs. And Jamaica decided that they were going to allow them to continue to operate. And all it took was one person. So one person gets infected and then the infection spread. And all of a sudden in Jamaica, the epicenter of COVID-19 is in this parish, St. Catherine's Parish, where one of the larger call centers are. So rather than me just do a story that says, okay, Jamaica cases are going up because they decided to leave these BPOs open. No, I wanted to do a smart story. And I'm always thinking about a smart story. So what is the lesson learned? What does Jamaica have to say about it? But I wanted to say to Puerto Rico, St. Lucia, hey, you're thinking about opening up? Check what's happening in Jamaica. As a matter of fact, maybe you want to call the Jamaicans and ask them about what should they have done or what they didn't do or what they did do, because there was a lesson there. And and I saw this emerge with Haiti when they went back to opening the factories and saying, you guys got to do what? But look what happened in Jamaica. They left this open. And it's not to pass judgment that it was right or it was wrong, but we have examples right next door and we often do not take advantage of it. And I'm saying we, but I'm saying we in terms of countries, but the governments, they don't take advantage of it. And so that's the approach that I've taken. Yeah. Going off of that, what are some other areas or just stories or events that you can see about to emerge in this region, whether it's related to the pandemic or not? Well, let's think about it in terms of stories that'll be easier to think about. Mm. So in the last couple of weeks, we've had two countries, St. Kitts Mm -hmm. and Suriname, even though Suriname is in South America, but it is part of CARICOM, the 15-member regional bloc Caribbean community. And These countries mostly consist of former British colonies, as well as French-speaking Haiti, which was a former French colony, and Suriname, which was Dutch. And they're the only two non-English-speaking members that are part of CARICOM. But Suriname and St. Kitts both had elections. And so what we saw, the, the story there was, how do you pull off an election in the midst of a pandemic? And we're still watching, I'm still watching St. Kitts, it's a small island. They've gotten over it. It's fine. They didn't really open it up for people who live here who are citizens of that country to fly in, which they normally would have done. And they also didn't have international observers in this in the form of the Organization of American States. But with Suriname, you have a president who was in power 
for 40 years. I mean, he was once a dictator. He's a convicted drug trafficker. Um, he's become a Democrat. And it looks like, at least from the preliminary results, that he's now lost elections. And last year he was convicted of murder because he was there was a you know military coup that happened. What does that mean? And is he, if the final results come in and say that his party is now out, will he relinquish power? Will it turn into something else? And why do we care? Because Suriname, which is Dutch Guyana, is right next to British Guyana, which we know is Guyana. And they had an election earlier this year and they're in the midst of a recount. And they've got Exxon off their shores and they're next to Venezuela, which is already you know, a mess. So, and in Guyana, it's unclear whether or not the president there, if he loses, is he going to peacefully turn over power to the opposition or are we going to go into like another political crisis? So there, what we're looking at at the edge of South America right now is that we may not even be talking about COVID anymore. We may be talking more and more about political instability in a region. And then how does that translate for the United States? Because for citizens, the diaspora of these countries, what's happening at home is very important to them. So that's something that I'm looking at. And one of the interesting things with Suriname is before they had their election, they had 10 registered cases of COVID-19. Only one was active. And then after the election, the number skyrocketed, I think, to 28. Why do we care? We care because on July 5th, the Dominican Republic is supposed to have a presidential election that they had already postponed. And you have a large Dominican population in New York. And New York was like the epicenter of this in the U.S. So will Cuomo allow Dominicans to vote in New York to go out? Will the Dominican Republic have international observers? And the DR is on the same island as Haiti. And right now the Dominican Republic has over 20,000 registered cases of COVID-19. Haiti just across 4,000 registered cases, even though we know the numbers are more than that. But we can get into a situation of a ping pong where Mm. one country manages to stabilize their numbers, but then the numbers go up because people are floating across these borders back and forth. And all of this, I mean, the approach that I've taken is that while everybody with this pandemic has been saying every man, every woman, child for him or herself, the reality is, is that we live in a global community and because of our borders that aren't really closed, if as long as one nation in this region is struggling with this pandemic, I don't think anybody can say we're in the clear. You know, the biggest story that's happening this week is the reopening of tourism. What is that going to mean in terms of a resurgence? But these countries, they depend on tourism. The Caribbean is the most tourism-dependent region in the world. And so when I think about the stories that we cover out of the U.S. in respect to this pandemic, and I think about the Caribbean, it's a little bit more complex. In one way, the English-speaking Caribbean has been able to contain this virus. There are countries that have no active cases, they have not registered any, and it's because they got a small number or they did the contact tracing and 
they shut down their airports and they shut down their seaports. But what is it going to mean when we reopen? I mean, the story I did today with my colleague, Taylor Dolvin, is the fact that there's 40,000 members of cruise ships that are out there in the ocean, stranded, cannot get home. And the big reason for that is because of this relationship between the cruise companies and these vulnerable Caribbean islands that says, I can't risk opening my airport to let you bring these people in here and then they are infected and then they go and collapse my healthcare system. So all of that begs the question, well, maybe you need to relook at those contracts. Mm. Why is your healthcare system still weak? Why isn't the cruise companies that are using you as a tax haven pumping in enough money that you can actually provide additional beds or state-of-the-art health care? I don't know the answer, but these are the kinds of discussions that are happening today in light of what's happened with COVID, that there are issues that we were not thinking about before, and people are starting to talk about them, to address them. Okay, so there are so many standout, groundbreaking stories that you've reported on throughout your career. And so before we get into your coverage of the Haiti earthquake, I want you to tell me and the listeners about one other story that you've reported on that really speaks to and reflects on your career as a journalist, what it means to you. So there's two things. We're talking about Black Lives Matter Mm -hmm. and I was thinking the other day and I was remembering Abner Luima and I interviewed him and, and he's the Haitian immigrant who was in New York and he was a victim of police brutality with a plunger. And I, I went back and I pulled a story up. And when I was reading the story, first I was like, oh, wow, this is a really nicely written story. <laughs> But as soon as I was reading that story, it, it took me back to the whole interview. And he was very reluctant. He's a very private person. And I, I just remember all I went through to get that story. And that's the thing for me. It's like every article is like a teaching moment, right? That's what I tell young journalists is that every article you do, love it or hate it, you're going to learn something from it. That either you're not going to repeat the next time or you're going to expand on. So that was something that I looked at just recently that hit me. But when you asked me that question, the first thing I thought about was one of my more recent works, and it was about cancer Mm -hmm. in Haiti. And I talked about being curious. And five or six years ago, I was having a conversation with Paul Farmer, who's an esteemed, you know, medical doctor, anthropologist. I mean, he's done groundbreaking work. He was there at the beginning of the AIDS epidemic. He's been there with cholera and now he's there with COVID. But he was giving me a tour. And when he was giving me this tour, he says, oh yeah, and this is where we treat cancer patients. And we were at his hospital in the central part of Haiti. And I said, cancer? And me being Haitian, I'm saying, well, how do we treat cancer in Haiti? Do people actually accept and acknowledge the cancer exists because Haiti is a country of mystic and mm. rarely do people die from something. It's they die because somebody did something to them. You know, in fact, I just had this argument with my mom today, eavesdropping on one of her conversations. <laughs> so for me, the fact that they had a center where they treated cancer was an acknowledgement that there were people 
that were acknowledging and accepting that they had cancer and they weren't taking it as a death sentence and they were being proactive about it. So it was always in the back of my mind that I wanted to do something about cancer in Haiti, but I didn't have the opportunity because there was news was always breaking and things were always happening. And I've got one disaster after another. And then I applied last year, I just did a whole project about um, Haitian immigrants in Latin America, which is another interest of mine. But my editor said, is there a project that you want to pitch? And I said, yeah, cancer in Haiti. So I applied to the Pulitzer Center, uh, which supports reporting, you know, crisis reporting. And I got this grant, which was basically that they were going to help pay for my travel and the investment of time of what it was going to take to report that story out. And I did several stories. And so one of the stories was about cervical cancer, which is treatable, preventable, but women in Haiti were still dying of high rates of cervical treatable cancer. And my approach to it was why? Why are women in Haiti dying from a disease that's preventable and treatable? So that allowed me to get into everything, the economics, the, the male-female relationship, the issues with health, access to health care. You know, one of the women that I went to go see, you know, the day that I went to go see her, because and I planned my trip on when she had to go for her chemo appointment, she did not have the bus fare to get from her town, which was two hours away, to the hospital. And I couldn't give it to her because I'm like, I'm not going to play God. We have to let this mm. roll out the way it's supposed to. And so we followed her journey and another woman's journey. Then the other story I wanted to show in terms of cancer was for kids. There's only one hospital in the whole country that deals with children, juvenile cancer, and it only had 10 beds. And the cutoff age was 14. And I wanted to talk about what does that mean? And so the way I decided to tell that story was through these two young boys, teenage boys, who both had advanced form of cancers, both are Mahatians who lived in Haiti, but one was lucky enough to come to the U.S. to get treatment and the other one was stuck in Haiti. Mm. And the one who was stuck in Haiti, Julie, unfortunately, he died last year while I was there. Actually, no, it was earlier this year. But, you know, again, telling that story and showing how the system is broken. So that stands out for me because... It was about the human struggle and it was about the human struggle in the context of being black, being poor, being in a place with very limited resources. It, it was an emotionally tough story in terms of the emotional investment it takes mm-hmm. me and uh, my colleague, Jose Iglesias, you know, going down and we made several trips down and just following these individuals. And I'm always grateful when people let me into their lives and allow you to tell their story. And when it gets comfortable enough that they forget that you're even there and you really get a good picture of what it's like. Mm. What was some of that emotion that you invested? You said it was an emotional investment. It's an emotional investment because, you know, you... As a journalist, you're a fly on the wall. You know, I tell everybody when people go down to Haiti, it's, you know, they want to help. They want to do this. They want to do that. And I said, listen, imagine a blind man and he's in this space and he's learned how to maneuver and get around this space. 
you come in, you feel sorry for him and you start changing things around. But if you're not going to be there for the long run, what happens when you leave? So my job is not to go in and to change the space. I'm to tell you how he's managed to survive with those limitations. And I can show you the shortcomings. And if you choose to go in and help, that's on you. But what I tell people all the time is that if somebody doesn't know about a problem, how can they fix it? When I think about the one particular kid, Julie, this is a teenage boy who had dreams. He had hopes. He had a huge tumor on his face. His mother had gone to like six different doctors who were telling her it's a this, it's a that. I mean, all of this before he was even diagnosed. Whenever you talk to him, you always saw him trying to hide it, even though there was this bandage that was there. At one point, he was going every week to get the bandage changed. And he went to one hospital where his mom got to the point where she couldn't even see the tumor anymore. And it burst and nobody told her that that had happened. And it wasn't until they were going to cut into his face in a procedure that we stopped doing in this country in 1970 to try and offer him some relief that they realized this. And all of a sudden they had to stop and they couldn't do it because it became about saving him, you know, from septic shock. And the day that he died, I was in Haiti working on the earthquake stuff and got a phone call from a nurse who had befriended the family and very much was a guardian angel. And she texted me and she said, Julie's not doing well. He's in a lot of pain and Angelina doesn't know what to do. The mom, can you go check on him? And I said, okay. And I went with my driver and where he was, was like an hour outside of Port-au-Prince. And when we got there, this kid was on the ground in excruciating pain and literally dying in front of me. And the mom was helpless. She reached out to the doctor who was like, well, don't bring him here. Like palliative care, there should be something to ease the pain. And so eventually he was able to pass away in a hospital thanks to another good Samaritan who stepped up when I had reached out to him and told him what was happening. But I I think sometimes people might think that I'm cold (laughs) because you ha- you show- you s- don't show a lot of emotion, what have you. And the best analogy I can give to you is, is the earthquake. My good friends who know me know that I'm a person, you know, I fall out at funerals and I'm watching movies and I start crying. And after the earthquake happened, one of my good friends in the newsroom, she said to me, have you cried? And I said, no. I said, what do you mean you haven't cried? I said, I haven't cried. And she kept badgering and pushing and pushing and pushing the subject like, no, you're supposed to have cried. I don't understand how you haven't cried. Are you so cold that you haven't cried? And then I remember I, I called a friend of mine who's a doctor and he was one of the first responders when this thing happened. And I said, let me ask you something. And he said, what's up? I said, have you cried? And he said, no. I said, why not? But he said, Because if I start crying, I'm never going to stop. And that's what it is. That there are things that you see that if you start taking it in, you're never going to stop and you're not going to be able to do your job. Like you, I have family in all of these countries. 
And when disaster strikes, you can't help everyone. But what you hope is that with your pen, with your voice, with your recording of history, because that's what you're doing, somebody somewhere will feel compelled to do something. But if you're a wreck, if you're a mess, or if you're in a situation where you're compromised, then you're completely useless. So that's what keeps me going. That's what, you know, sort of this larger gold. And, you know, they talk about fearless. Yeah, I, I think about after the fact what I did. And so, oh my God, did I do that? <laughs> did I really get in a helicopter in the middle of a hurricane? <laughs> but, you know, there's a larger goal. And the larger goal is, and I make no promises. I tell people, look, I'm not going to tell you that you talk to me, that your life is going to change. It may not change. Most likely it will not change. But if people don't know your struggle, how can they even think about what you're going through? So that is my, you know, my motto and that, and, and when you're there, you know, when you're a journalist, there's something about that adrenaline and getting a story. First of all, you're on somebody else's dime. You've got this clock that's ticking. It's called a deadline. <laughs> you know, you just, you got to get the story. And, and then after you, you file and you send that story on and then you stop and then you, all of a sudden it plays back in your mind or you try not to have it play back in your mind because then you're like, Oh my God. Oh my God. Yeah. So yes, I don't want people to think that it's all, gloom and doom. There are, there are depressing stories and these are depressing times, but this is a region that is so rich and vibrant. You know, I went whale hunting in St. Vincent like five years ago. <laughs> Who gets to go whale hunting? The only place <laughs> in the region where they still hunt whales. And I got to go and I got to tell that story. <laughs> okay. I want you to tell me and the listeners about your coverage of the Haiti earthquake. Let's start from the beginning. So the earthquake happens January 2010. Boom. It happened on the 12th. And so what happens next for you? So January 12, 2010. Let me just take you to that day. I'm in my office and I'm doing what I normally do, which is I am multitasking. So on the one hand, I'm emailing back and forth a friend of mine who is in Haiti and has an apartment at the Montana Hotel. And I'm checking to see if he's going to be using his apartment the following weekend because I want to come down for the Haiti Jazz Festival. The people from the Jazz Festival kept approaching me about doing a story, but I'm not comfortable doing a story about something, an event that I've never gone to. So I'm deciding that I'm going to take a little vacation time, which I never take on my own. I'm going to go down there and I'm going to check it out with no promises of a story because I'm going on my own. Yeah. At the same time, I'm working on a story about how President Rene Preval is getting reprimanded by International Monetary Fund because he just took this loan out with Venezuela and Hugo Chavez and everybody's upset. And former President Bill Clinton, who has a soft spot for him, is getting ready to fly from New York to Washington either that day or the next day to go plead his case. And I'm trying to nail this story. So in between trying to plot out, you know, my vacation the following weekend for the Jazz Fest and trying to 
come with a hard story, a scoop. A friend of mine walks over to my desk and she says, Hetty just got hit by an earthquake. I'm like, huh, what? She's like, AP just moved a wire. So I drop everything and I go to the wire and I see just a bulletin about earthquake in Haiti. And I have to tell you, I had the president's phone number and I had his phone number now for a couple of years and he did not know that I had his phone number. And I knew when I got that phone number that I would only get one shot mm. at using that phone number because when he found that I had that phone number, he's going to either be mad or he's going to change the number. But it was like not a phone number that you will call for something trivial. This is a phone number that I'm going to dial for something big. And this was it. I started trying to call the president. I can't get him. I tried calling his wife, whose phone number I had. I can't get her. I tried. I have a very, very good source that I was very close to. He was one of the higher ups at the UN. And I'm calling him and I'm praying at the same time that he's out on the street somewhere and he's not debt. He's not underneath the rubble someplace. And I'm trying to get him and I can't get him. And now I'm just starting to call and call. And I call the Haitian consul general and he tells me the first lady is trying to get a hold of me. I'm like, I'm trying to get a hold of her too. And while I'm doing this, we're all over. We're on Facebook. We're trying to find any tidbit of news, anything that we could get. And then one of my good friends, Cyril Pessois, I I call Cyril and he happens to be outside of Port-au-Prince. He had a tour group that he was taking around and he's still getting cell signal. So I call him and I'm giving him my cherished number of sources, secret phone numbers to people from the palace. You call them, you tell them that I gave you the phone number and we're trying to get whatever information that we can get. So this is how this all gets rolling. And then later on at night, I find out that the entire top brass of the UN is underneath the rubble because they were having a meeting with a delegation, a Chinese delegation in the Christopher Hotel and that hotel collapsed. At the same time, people are calling and they want interviews and we're still trying to find information and we're putting out stories and we're updating. And we finally get a flight and it's a charter plane and we're supposed to leave. So I go to uh, Walgreens because they're open late at night. Go to Walgreens, buy underwear, buy socks, buy whatever you can. Because <laughs> at this point, you don't know when you're coming back. You don't know what you have, and you better pack light because you just don't know. And so I go to the airport, and the pilot is refusing to leave because we could get shot down. And this is Haiti. You're not going to get shot. Down. No, I'm not going until I get permission. So I'm at the airport. I'm still trying to get the president on the phone, and the phone rings. And his wife answers. And I'm like, Babette. And she's I'm like, Jacqueline. And she's like, yes. And she's like, oh my God, Jacqueline, it's so bad. And then she's talking. And I said, well, where are you? She says, we're at the parliament. And then she says, do you want to talk to Renee? the president. Yes. <laughs> she passes the phone to him. And then he says, the country's destroyed. And he says, where are you? When are you coming? I said, I'm trying to come. I'm in Miami. I'm trying to come. He says, come. I said, we need permission. He says, you have my permission. So if people remember, there was a bulletin that went out on CNN, quoting the Miami Herald. The president said the country's destroyed. Literally at that moment, he was stepping over dead bodies. When I was talking to him at the parliament, for parliamentarians who had died, I arrived in Haiti before noon. When I got there, 
I am getting off this charter plane and my ticket was like one way was something ridiculous. I think it was like $6,000 for my one seat or something one way. And we walked on the tarmac. The entire Haitian government was there. So that was one of the things. There was this narrative that the Haitian government, the president was nowhere to be found. And I don't know where that developed and how that developed. And I'm assuming that foreign journalists who parachuted in had never been to the Mm. country the first thing they did was they went to the palace, which had been destroyed. But when I arrived, and I was one of the first ones to get there, the president of the country and the entire government was there at the airport. And we walk out, and I had told my other colleagues, okay, we're going to meet at this one hotel, thinking that there would be hotel rooms. And we literally were trying to, you know, hitchhike. I mean, with the finger up, trying to wave cars. It looked like it was like a nuclear bomb had dropped on the place. People were not trying to stop for us. Um, We were trying to wave down cars, wave down Haitian taxis, which are like these trucks, colorful trucks, tap taps. And then finally one stopped for us. And we got in the back. And while we're going up, you know, you see people running with bodies, some dead, some alive, some injured. And there was one young lady that we actually got her to come in to the truck, we laid her down and we're trying to get her to a hospital. And the hospital that we ended up going to had collapsed. And so we ended up at the hotel, which basically the whole, the entire yard of the hotel had basically turned into an infirmary because everybody there had some sort of injury. And all you saw were people, you literally were stepping over bodies and people were trying to give whatever kind of assistance that they could give. So I spent those first couple of days. We ended up not staying there. We we ended up going to another hotel up the street and they didn't have any rooms. And we were also afraid to sleep in the rooms because the hotel was still standing, but you didn't know how safe it was. And so it was freezing cold. I remember all I had was like a tablecloth that still had the scent of food on it. And outside the gate, you had like this large crowd that had gathered on a plaza. They were singing, they were storming up and down. And honestly, it was just a gate between us and them. And you didn't know if the masses would be so angry at what had happened that they would turn on the people on the inside. Because it really was a situation of the haves versus the have-nots. And it was my first time in an earthquake. You know, a hurricane, you know it's coming. You you can prepare for it. You can put yourself someplace and wait for it to go away. With the earthquake, you're sitting there and all of a sudden the ground starts rattling. You know, at one point at the hotel, they put us like in this basement room. (laughs) I was like, oh my gosh. And so we would sleep with the window open, me and my colleague, Leslie, because it was like, if anything, we're going to have to jump out the window. Mm. And then we a couple of weeks later, we ended up at another hotel. And I remember saying to the guy, why do you keep putting me at the top? And I said to him, I wanted to be at the bottom. And then he says, you, you didn't see what happened with everybody that was at the bottom. They all got pancakes. So we're like, okay, leave us at the top. But one night we had a huge aftershock and it took me a minute to get down. And the earthquake itself was 35 seconds. And I just remember saying I would have been dead. But at some point you got tired. 
you got tired of not sleeping. You got tired of like holding your passport when you slept. And this was happening to everybody. You know, I remember talking to the prime minister at the time who says, you know what? I'm tired of sleeping outside. I'm tired of not sleeping. And so at some point you just had to say, you know what? If it's going to come, it's going to come. If it's going to fall on the building, it's going to fall on the building. Because you just needed to sleep. You know, you needed to just have like one decent night's sleep. So it was crazy. I learned through a phone call that I was going to be living in Haiti for the next 18 months. There was a meeting with my bosses and this was decided. I was like, huh, what? Um, But that was our commitment that we were always going to have a full-time body in Haiti. And we were going to document, you know, that rebuilding or lack thereof. And that's what we did. And this year was 10 years. And I focused my most recent project before the pandemic on the 10th anniversary of the quake to try and answer some of the questions that people had, you know, what happened to all the money? There was money that was promised and a lot of that money never came, bottom line. And the money that did come, very little of it even went to the government. They went to nonprofit, to charities that rented expensive houses, that bought cars, And for the people who were homeless, many of them today remain homeless and their lives did not get better since this huge natural disaster that, according to the Haitian government, left more than 316,000 people dead. And then now you are reporting on a pandemic impacting that already extremely vulnerable population. Exactly. You're dealing with the stigma of this disease that people don't want to admit that they have COVID. They don't believe that COVID exists because they don't believe the messenger, which is the government. And today the government can't even get the population to do a lockdown for this pandemic. So, and I have to tell you that I try not to think ahead because when you hear the projections of one of the models that says you can have 20,000 people who die in that country, and that's if you have 9,000 beds available, and there are not 9,000 beds available. You know, up until a few weeks ago, there were barely 300 beds available, and they don't have the ability to put 9,000 beds available. Um, People are not self-quarantined, they're not staying at home, they're going about their business. And so they run the risk, the very high risk of infecting others and spreading the infection. And so that's what we're watching. And we're and we're seeing that play itself out throughout Latin America, but in Haiti, we're seeing it play itself out heavily because it's a very densely populated area and it's a country that is very, very vulnerable that has very little means, and even people who are well-educated, who know better, are still taking a very laissez-faire attitude when it comes to the pandemic, and that is what's frightening and very disturbing as well. And how much of your family is still in Haiti? So my mother's Haitian, and with the exception of my mother and two uncles that I have here, and an aunt, all of my mother's family is in Haiti. My mom has a huge, huge family. So I still have cousins. Um, I have aunts that are there. And I always reminded the fact that it's one one decision. It's the only difference between me and them. Mm-hmm. You know, my, mm-hmm. my mother left 
she decided to have me in a foreign country. She didn't have me in Haiti. She didn't send me back to Haiti once she had me. That's the only difference between me and my cousins. I could very easily have been in their position, been in the place that they are. My father is from Turks and Caicos, which is a British dependent territory. I was born there, spent early part of my life there, but all of my family on my father's side is still in Turks and Caicos. Um, I have a large family there, lots of nieces and nephews and siblings. So yeah, so my, my, my immediate surrounding, I'm very much rooted in the region. In this blurb, That explains why in 2011 you won Best Miami Herald Reporter. It says, The Miami Herald correspondent has lived and worked amid death and destruction on an unimaginable scale, covering cholera outbreaks, election riots, lawlessness, and humanitarian miracles. And through it all, she has produced extraordinary journalism week in and week out, often by putting a human face on Haiti's miseries. What What do you think about that description? It says that people are watching and they're understanding what it takes to get these stories Mm. and the investment that it takes to get the stories. And I think one of the references was to 2008. We had four back-to-back hurricanes in 30 days. And then I had malnutrition in the mountains. Then I had a school that collapsed. I mean, all of this happened like right after each other. Like I literally remember I came back to Miami on a Monday and Tuesday morning I was back on a plane to Haiti. Wow. I read here, I believe it was, it was like a profile on you. And you were with longtime Herald photographer, Patrick Farrell. First, let me read what Patrick Farrell said about you. So Farrell said that Charles remained cool even in the face of possible death on at least one occasion when they were driving from, and I'm sorry if I mispronounce this, Cabaret to um, Port-au-Prince. Water was coming down the mountain. The road disappeared for about half a mile. We decided to drive through because we wanted to hurry up and get back to get the story in the paper. The car stalled and started to shake, and it felt like the car would flip over and roll into the ravine where all the water was gathered. And she just calmly turned around and said, You know, I've never learned how to swim. Pharrell himself won a Pulitzer Prize, the most coveted journalism award for photography in 2009. But he said, it was totally our Pulitzer. It was Jackie and I. She deserves it all. She's amazing. So, (laughs) okay. So this was 2008. This was during those four back-to-back hurricanes. This was actually the third hurricane. This was Cabarets. So we had... Prior to that, we had been in Gonaive. So we got to Gonaive for the second storm. And I had a source of mine in the disaster office who says, where are you? And I said, I'm outside of Gonaive. And he says, you need to come back to Port-au-Prince right now because the storm has turned. And after we crossed like the last bridge, that bridge ended up collapsing. Mm. So this city that sits like a basin in Haiti was now completely, completely cut off from the rest of the country, you can get to it. So um, that night I am listening to the radio all night. I'm listening to the calls that are coming in. And then we wake up that morning, go get something to eat. And we're trying to figure out now, where should we go? Because the storm, the third storm is hit. And somebody said something about Cabaret. And I said, 
really? I said, and I hadn't been to Cabaret. You know, I passed through there, but I'd never been. I was like, well, where is it? They said, well, it's just north of Port-au-Prince. So Patrick and I went to Cabaret. And this was a really tragic situation because this was a, a father who had raised his, she was his stepdaughter, but this was his daughter. And the girl had been swept out of his arms during the storm. And he had been going all over trying to find her. And when we got there, people were like, go this way, go that way. And when we got to this motorcycle shop, there were all of these little dead babies. I mean, looking like porcelain dolls that had been laid out on concrete. And then the father came to us with his daughter. She's lifeless in, you know, um, his arms. And he wanted us to take a picture. He wanted to record that moment, you know, look at what has happened to my child. So after we were there, we were reporting a story and then um, I got on the phone, I called, I reported in and then somebody was pulling me and saying, no, but you go to this river because this river brought down the old people. Like this river brought down the babies, this river brought down the old people. And I was at that point, I was like, we're good. Like at that point, you'd seen so many bodies that you just humanly could not see anymore. And we started to make our way back to Port-au-Prince. And now, as Patrick described, we are on a road that has turned into a river. The water is peeling off the mountain. Uh, the ocean is on the other side. And the water is like rising up in the SUV that we're in. And Patrick, which he left out, we, we, we stalled. And Patrick says, do you know how to swim? And I'm not paying any attention to what's happening behind around me. I'm literally like writing my story on my phone on my BlackBerry at that point. And I was like, oh, you know, I went to Chapel Hill. I was supposed to, you know, got a degree, but go through this hole. But no, why are you asking me that? Look out the window. And I look out and I'm like, okay, okay, well, you know, we'll just get on the rooftop of the truck if we need to. <laughs> Wow. And I have to tell you, at this point, I've been covering Haiti for several years. I'd never seen a Haitian fire truck in my life. And all of a sudden, I look in the rearview mirror, and there is a fire truck that is coming up behind us. Because God was good that day. Mm. God was God is always good, but he was especially good that day. And the fire truck came, and the fire truck pushed us out. Because honestly we would have gotten swept into that ocean. But yeah, but I'm always getting Patrick in these water situation. The, the story I thought he was referring to was when we went to um, Ile de la Tortue, which is an island. It's the original Pirates of the Caribbean. So people should know the whole movie Pirates of the Caribbean is based on this island off the coast of Haiti because it's where the buccaneers used to launch from when you would steal these ships. And so it's called Turtle Island or Tortuga Island. So there was a tragic incident where Haitians had died at sea in the waters of the Bahamas, and some of them had survived. So I was going in search of their survivors. And this was about 2011, 2012. And so we meet with this guy. I'm in a restaurant. We're negotiating with him. And I negotiate a charter for $250. US And I'm thinking that it's a boat. It's a yacht, right? Well, when I get to the dock, I realized that the 250 US dollars did not get me 
a yacht. It got me a wooden Haitian boat, which is a sloop. This is usually the boats that they would move migrants in. And somebody came to me and says, I'm going to carry you through the water to put you on a boat. I said, no, you're not going to lift me. You're not going to touch me. I will walk myself through the, through the ocean. So I like walked through the ocean and then they had to like pull me up on the boat. When we got on the boat, I realized that everybody on the boat had paid the equivalent of $2.50, but I, Patrick and I got paid 250 bucks. Patrick, who doesn't speak Creole, and the way he functions is, I don't want to know. And I'm always like, no, I need to translate for you. So you know what's <laughs> happening. What's being said? And he's like, I don't want to know. I don't want to know. So we're on this boat. There's one woman who's puking her brains out. And then Patrick is standing up with his camera. And the people on the boat are all having conversations about throwing him overboard. And as I'm <laughs> translating this to him, he does not want to know, does not want to know. We, and then at one point, the boat, this was supposed to be maybe like a 25-minute ride to this island, but it ended up being two hours because the boat stopped, broke down in the middle of the ocean. So then it had to get towed by another wooden boat. And then six months later, we had to return to the island. So this time, Patrick did not want to take a sloop. So we ended up with a canoe. And then he was screaming the whole time because we're in this canoe in the ocean and he's getting completely wet. His camera's getting wet and he's like throwing a temper tantrum. I said, well, fine. If you want to go back, you can go back and you can go on that sloop. But you see me, I'm staying in this canoe because I know what happened the last time. <laughs> so there's a picture, I think, on my Facebook page where he arrives and he's like completely soaked and wet. But it's one of those like, did I that? <laughs> yeah, like you could have died at sea, you could have drowned because this really is, you know, was the ocean and you're in a canoe and don't really swim and you're just, you know, in search of the story. <laughs> so, Jacqueline, I just want to close off with one or two questions from a Trinibagoan journalist who I met on Twitter, his name is Clydeen McDonald. He's a freelance journalist right now. Um, he typically covers drug policy throughout the Caribbean region, but um, he has been, you know, trying unsuccessfully to pitch some of these um, national and international publications like The Guardian, he said, I think Al Jazeera, um, just about some of these issues revolving involving the Caribbean pandemic. And so he wanted to know if if you thought that Caribbean issues at times are brushed aside for coverage of other international nations in the journalism field. I mean, let's be real. I mean, when we look at the United States and what's happened in the last couple of years, international news has taken a huge hit. I mean, there are papers that have bureaus all over the world and those bureaus no longer exist or they've cut them back. I know, like, for instance, when I was talking to some of my fellow colleagues that were trying to pitch down the 10th anniversary of the earthquake, they were told by different publications, oh, well, you know what, we, we already got our Caribbean quota, you know, mm. and maybe it was a story out of someplace in Latin America. So it is very difficult to get other papers, especially in the U.S. publications, to be interested 
in stories out of the region. I mean, the BBC, they do do stories out of the region, but they are also judicious in the stories that they do. So if you're pitching, most likely their correspondents are either already working on it or they're working on something else. That's what when I talk about in terms of the Miami Herald and devoting the resources that I have the luxury of not having to like have somebody tell me that they've already had their quota for the region. And oftentimes it's really because I'm one person and I can't do all of these things by myself. So I also have to pick and choose in terms of the stories, you know, that I do. But yes, in terms of the Caribbean, it's, it's tough. It's tough. And I do feel for Caribbean journalists who want to have their work amplified in U.S. publications or other publications outside of the region. So my advice for you to be is to continue to pitch those stories, but find a way to pitch the story that it's not a story about Jamaica. It's not a story about Trinidad and Tobago. It's a regional story. And here's why you should care. You've got to tell that American editor, why is it that they should care? And for American journalists who are interested in Caribbean stories, if you're in a community where you have that population that exists, show the bridge. That's how I got started. I was the Caribbean affairs reporter at the Miami Herald covering the community and then finding those stories that were happening in the foreign countries and making the tie-in between what was happening there and what was happening locally. So if you're interested and that's what you want, there's more than one way to skin a cat. <laughs> so, you know, you find out what, what is it that your publication would interest them? What is the tack that they like? And then is there a way that you can pitch your story where you don't lose the story, you don't lose the essence, you don't lose the voice or the message, but you can broaden it out or tell it from a perspective that it will interest that publication or that editor. Mm. And so to wrap everything up, long form has a huge, huge audience a lot of people listening who are part of the journalism industry, media professionals, what do you want to say to them? You know, I want to say, and we didn't touch on this. So two weeks ago when we started these, the protests started in Miami, I got tapped to go and cover the first protest that happened in Miami in relation to George Floyd and Black Lives Matter. And I told everybody I got tapped because of my combat experience of having covered protests in in the countries that I cover. And now there's this other conversation that's happening in the media where, you know, we're looking at this issue of diversity. We're looking at how Black journalists uh, have started to disappear. And, you know, there was a point before this industry was going through its current crisis where, I remember ASNE and other organizations used to talk about the percentage of the minority report. You know, how are we doing in terms of our minority hiring? How are we doing in terms of our newsrooms? And my challenge, everybody, is that I think we need to once again just start to have the conversations. Do our newsrooms reflect the communities that we serve? And as journalists in these newsrooms, As I told my colleagues last week at the Miami Herald, it begins with each of us. You know, when you're doing this story, do you have a female? Do you have a Black person in a story that has absolutely nothing to do with race or class or ethnicity? Like, we need to challenge ourselves to bring that diversity in terms of our coverage. I struggle with this because sometimes my stories are all male. It's because it's hard to find females 
who want to put themselves out there and who want to talk. But I think that that's a first and concrete step. But I would like for the industry to once again, you know, make this a priority in terms of recognizing the fact that we've used cuts in the economic problems in this industry to not think about how diverse we are or we aren't, but I don't want it to be lip service. Mm. Don't just hire somebody because they're black, they're, 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 they're Hispanic, because those of us who are in these newsrooms, we understand that when people get hired and they don't cut out that all of a sudden, you know, we feel it more than others, you know? So there are a lot of good and great and talented journalists of color who are out there and who can contribute And so I would hope that when we get these slots that are open, that we hire them. That's the conversation that I want to see going forward from us as we're looking at the racism, the failures. I am a product of a commitment that was made, you know, by Al Fitzpatrick, who was still there, who's still alive at 90 plus years old, was the vice president of minority affairs at Knight Ritter, who says that we're going to bring in uh, minority journalists, black journalists. And we are going to mentor them and we're going to show them a reason to stay. And we're going to help produce a path for them. And then somehow that went away, you know, as people retired, as jobs got cut, as decisions got made. But I think that we need to go back to that. And I've been mentored and I have a lot of mentors and where I can, I have given back and I've tried to give back because you have to pay it forward. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Longform. I'm Patrice Peck and the co-hosts are Aaron Lammer, Max Linsky, and Evan Ratliff. Janelle Pfeiffer is the editor and Julian Parker is the intern. Thanks so much to Jacqueline Charles. You are such a badass and I can't wait to keep following all the amazing things you do in your career. We will be back next week. Why do you run? Why does anyone? I always thought that runners loved running. And that's not the case. Most runners hate running. (laughs) But they choose to do it. In the new docuseries Running Sucks brought to you by Team Milk, Abby Ayers learns why women runners everywhere are driven to go the distance. It really is about taking my power back and proving myself wrong. Team Milk is about fueling women's performance and helping them along their marathon journeys. You can sign up now for the inaugural Every Woman's Marathon taking place in Savannah, Georgia on November 16th, 2024. Learn more and register at everywomansmarathon.com.